Welcome to The Lead, the New Lions Magazine podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. The end of the 20th century saw a worldwide wave of democratization across Latin America and the former Eastern Bloc, which swept away the old regimes. In hindsight, that may have been democracy's high watermark. In the decades since, the trend has reversed. The rising popularity of authoritarian leaders has put democracy under threat, even where it was thought to be most firmly established, such as in the United States. This will not be an unfamiliar story to most listeners. Since the rise of Trump, authoritarianism has been the word on everybody's lips. But do we understand it as well as we think? In a series of podcasts, the lead is exploring authoritarianism from underexplored angles. We spoke to the political theorist Leopi about her experiences growing up during the fall of communist Albania and the complex relationship between authoritarianism, freedom and truth. Today I'll be speaking to Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat of New York University, a historian specializing in the rise of Italian fascism under Benito Mussolini. Her recent book, Strong Men, From Mussolini to the Present, puts the authoritarian leaders powering the current wave of autocratization under a microscope. Taking a wider historical perspective, she argues that strong men have come to power in three successive waves during the fascist takeovers of the early 20th century, through military coups in the post-war period, and through elections in our current period of democratic backsliding. Ruth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, let's start by talking about this word, a strong man. Uh, one gets the impression that you were quite intentional about using that specific word. And you don't just use it as a synonym for dictator, rather you use it to describe a particular kind of dictator with a particular style of rule. So what is it that makes a leader a strong man? So the strong man is a subset of authoritarian leaders. And there's two things that distinguish uh, him, regardless of the age. One is that they personalize power. So these are people who come to power and organize the state around their personal financial and personal uh, political and other obsessions and needs. So it's called personalist rule. And for example, um, in the Cold War, not all of the military dictatorships were personalist rule. Like in Brazil, you had a collective leadership. But I looked at in Chile, Augusto Pinochet, who really personalized power. So mm. that's one thing. And the other is that all of the strongmen use machismo as a way of legitimizing themselves, as a way of appealing to people, as a way of becoming the emblem through their version of manhood of national strength. So these two things, uh, I argue, distinguish uh, this subset of leaders from Mussolini up to Trump. Mm. And, and so the examples that you focus on in the book, they're quite an eclectic mix. Um, you talk about Benito Mussolini, this is 1920s Italy, uh, Mobutu Sesso Seco in Cold War Zaire, Donald Trump, of course, in modern America. And they have these major differences in their ideologies uh, and the circumstances in which they took power. We'll come to the machismo, which is a very interesting and, and central part of the argument. But in terms of style and the rhetoric and the personality, you still think that they had more in common than not. Yeah, so the the book is a is a book about um, exploring patterns, patterns in what makes this kind of leader and regime appeal, 
patterns in personality. Uh, many of these men have similar personalities. Um, they're ruthless. They have no moral code. They are opportunistic. They will be whatever the public needs them to be at that moment. And, and these are things uh, that translate into similar governing styles. So they all have these kind of inner sanctums where they have family members. I have a paragraph in the book on the role of sons-in-law, mm. um, which, you know, from Mussolini up to Trump, they, yeah. they all have their... And this is because they keep their secrets, they're corrupt, and it's, it's all kept in the family, right? Mm. Um, so, so those are some of the, the kind of patterns and, and one of the main things that comes out around the world is this kind of uh, leader appeals when a society has been through a lot of change. It could be, um, you know, gender equity, it could be workers' rights, it could be racial emancipation. And uh, it's when populations feel that there's change happening and uh, they're, they're, it, it, while some it appeals to, others feel that things are spirit spinning out of control. And that's when people uh, gravitate toward these strongmen who shake everything up. Often they come from outside of politics, but they also want to kind of turn the clock back um, and take away rights, take away workers' rights, impose capital over labor or uh, take away women's rights, certainly reproductive rights. Mm. So these are things that recur. The way they get to power changes over a hundred years, but the net effect of what they do uh, is, is much the same. I mean, I get the impression from the book that you're much more interested in thinking about um, the political beliefs that they have as just another weapon in the autocrat's arsenal rather than an end in itself. So you say they're not very ideological. It seems as if you think one of the things they have in common is that they're not ideological creatures at all. They're kind of bandits who just learn as if learn to sound as if they are. Some of them, I mean, some of them are highly ideological um, and they have kind of fixations like Hitler with the Jews. Um, or Mussolini reviving the empire, but, um, and certainly Gaddafi. So Gaddafi is the one um, strongman in the book who's not a right winger. And the reason mm. he's there is that he connects to both Mussolini because uh, uh, Italy occupied Libya and committed genocide, but he connects to Berlusconi. And I wanted to show the kind of transactional nature of, of these strongmen and the way that they do deals with each other. Um, but um, they, you know, they, they definitely um, have kind of certain strategies that, that, build, that connect with ideologies. For example, and this is fascinating, over a hundred years, this has not changed. On the one hand, they traffic in utopia. So they promise uh, a golden future for the nation, and only they have the abilities to lead the nation to greatness. And so Mobutu and Gaddafi were called the guide, right? And, right. and so often also religious institutions are propping them up, and they come out and say that you know, Mussolini was the man of providence, or Trump is in office by the will of God. So they have, so it's future oriented. So people who are discontent with their lives, their economic circumstances, they have a utopia um, and, and the leader becomes the focus of that. But it's not making the nation great. 
it's making the nation great again. Mm. So they also, at the same time, are trafficking in nostalgia. And, and, and so every one of them um, has some kind of mythical past or, or real past of empire or greatness when the nation was bigger and grander. So Mussolini had the Roman Empire. Now Hitler had this kind of, you know, um, Aryan perfection that never really existed. So his was more of a fantasy. And, and then you had, you know, Erdogan today in Turkey, he's obsessed with the, the Ottoman Empire. And we all know that Putin has, you know, part of invading Ukraine is to, you know, kind of resurrect some version of Russian great power, whether it's right. modeling on Peter the Great or on Stalin or whatever, you know, and often it's many of these things. And so the, the ideology is not consistent. How can you could say, how can you be both peddling uh, utopia and also peddling nostalgia? But that's exactly what they do. And why do you think that nostalgia is so potent? Because we've talked about, you know, we've talked about the strongmen themselves. But what about the, what you might think of as the demand side of the equation? I mean, the mass appeal of these figures and the emotional intensity of their supporters, it underscores the extent to which large parts of the electorate, the people, do want what these figures are delivering. Well, part of it is... Um... It, it's when people, you know, many times, if we take Trump as an example, he he purposely um, cultivated and went after what he called the forgotten people mm -hmm. who were suffering. And he said, I love you. I care about you. You're forgotten no longer. And these were people who were struggling. And, and so to come to them and say, I'm going to restore things the way they used to be. And so there you play on... Uh, kind of resentment that people have. And in the, in the American European context, it's resentment with um, non-white, non-white people or non-Christian people who are getting ahead at your expense. So turning the clock back with the nostalgia, uh, which in Trump's case was a, this kind of a vague when white men had dominion over others, when women knew their place, when, you know, blacks couldn't vote as easily and all your problems will be solved. Mm. Um, and, and so it, it, it articulates differently in different you know, situations around the world, but this kind of um, very strong impulse to uh, restore some kind of privilege, and certainly that's why elites buy in. And I, I work with the concept in the book of the authoritarian bargain, where mm. elites both, you know, especially financial elites, but also religious elites, if they feel they're losing their privileges because of social progress or secularization, whatever it is, and that's an important through line, the, the way that religious institutions uh, partner with these people to, um, to counteract secularization, right? Mm. And, they, and then they get privileges, like Putin has been funding and restoring Orthodox churches. He's given a lot to the Russian Orthodox Church in return for their support. Even now when he's killing children and committing war crimes every day, they're still there with him. So this is the authoritarian bargain. So it's very, it's very potent both at the popular grassroots level and at a more transactional uh, elite level to promise 
to stop things that are threatening to privilege or threatening to status, including male authority, and promise something different. Well, I want to talk about the male authority and the masculinity part, because you you argue very persuasively that the authority of strong men is inextricably linked to their machismo. So, the you know the authoritarian ruler will present himself as a virile powerful alpha male type um who does what needs to be done and who alone as you were saying has the will to stand up against the forces of corruption and uh effeminacy sometimes um and this is how they resolve this tension between the law and order platform which almost all authoritarianism um starts from and then their own obviously disregard of the law and you see that that is part of the persona so we're talking about putin that's why you often see putin shirtless and he makes a lot of his sporting prowess and why donald trump made a lot of his sexual conquests yes exactly and i really um strongman is the first book to really take um take Putin who's shirtless seriously mm. and say this is not we can ridicule it we can uh you know laugh at it but it is deadly serious and it interacts with the other tools of rule with propaganda with violence with corruption because not only this is the man who is capable of violence as a strong man literally um will defend you but he's also the man who gets away with things that others cannot mm. and this is very important their impunity right and the yeah. purpose of the personality cult and and this again i was i was amazed this every single case study over 100 years here's the canon of the personality cult that has not changed so it has to be a man of the people so relatable and they have a very strong you know bond with their people and they use media very effectively to be the man of the people but they must also be a man above all other men a special man mm. so before we talked about the special man touched by divinity who can lead the nation to greatness but again also the man who gets away with it who can do anything so when donald trump when those tapes came out right before the election in 2016 that said you know he said when you're a star you can do anything and some people thought that this would be the end of his campaign and if, and i said uh oh well this is actually going to help him yeah <laughs> because among that constituency that he'd already been cultivating this was this was something to admire the man who gets away with it who can do anything and and so this identification and bonding that people have with the machismo and the way it feeds into the violence and the corruption is absolutely central but when i had been looking at uh vast literature of political science and other you know disciplines i just didn't find that they i didn't find that they were taking it seriously and integrating it into the framework and so that's why I decided to focus on it so heavily. I mean, we've talked about a couple of examples, and as you say, it seems to replicate itself across these strongmen. But it, it's, tell me more about why do you think it matters so much to the the voting public, the people, that the the, the leader can get away with things, as you see with Trump, he, they feel he can get away with sexual assault, but then it's also with his 
anti-woke sentiments. He says things that in other cases might get people canceled or fired, and he just carries on. And they seem to enjoy that part of it. What is the appeal in there? So many of these people, they come to power uh, either already with a criminal record, like Hitler and Mussolini, mm-hmm. or in the age of coups, they come to power by killing people and, and taking over illegally and, and, you know, like violent takeover. Or in the 21st century, when they run for election, when they run for office through elections, a, a high number of them distinguish themselves from other candidates by talking about how they are violent and they can get away with things. So Bolsonaro, you know, talked about how if his son were gay, he'd strangle him. And Duterte actually said, don't vote for me because it's going to be bloody. And right. Trump, this was, this was, I ran home to do an op-ed when this happened, January 2016, so quite early in his campaign. And he, he said, I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and I wouldn't lose any followers. Now, who does that? Is, yeah. this, is this a thing that a candidate should do? Well, yes, if you're a strongman. Not, no, if you're a Democrat with a small d. So they, mm. they, they train their audience to, this becomes part of their persona. And it's very exciting. The rule breaking is very exciting. And, and so at the elite level, it signals to political class that they will be able to do things that no other leader would let them do from being corrupt, from uh, having, you know, they could have for they could have deals with foreign people. They could do all sorts of things that, that under a Democrat, they couldn't do. And at the grassroots level, you see what, what Trump was able to do. He, he gave a home to all these extremists, all these violent people, people with arsenals, people who are very troubled, uh, who, who, who were kind of considered outlaws or fringe people. And he said, no, you're important to the nation. And, and so this becomes their brand. And, and actually, it's the same with propaganda. There's an interesting study that is about why people believe their lies. And so, of course, some people are duped. They, they just fall for it. But others, they know, they suspect that the person's telling a lie or stretching the truth, but they like that because it's more rule-breaking. Mm, so these transgressive. Are rogue, yes, these are rogue figures. So they're either, and so I mentioned Mussolini and Hitler who had criminal records, but Trump, Putin, and Berlusconi came to power when they were already under investigation. So these are rogue figures mm. to start with. We've talked about male strongmen. But I wanted to interrogate that a little bit, because in the book, you say you don't write about female leaders like Indira Gandhi and Margaret Thatcher to a lesser degree because it was democracy. You say that you don't write about them because despite having strongman traits, neither of them sought to destroy democracy. Yes. And also because I I wanted to really redress this um, gap where machismo was not accounted for. However, at the end of the book, in the conclusion, I, I say that a female-led authoritarian state will be, is inevitable. And I was thinking at the time, I had to turn in the book in 2020 of Marine Le Pen. Mm. But now we have Giorgia Meloni, who is the first female prime minister in Italy. And the first, uh, she's a former fascist, and she's still quite fascistic in my, in my opinion. And she's a, she's a demagogue. 
So she is actually um, a, a strong woman. The first one we've had who comes from a fascist background and is already um, has her new government has many former fascists in it, and and they believe will be pursuing uh, many illiberal policies similar to Hungary's. But this uh, this was inevitable, and um, now it's come into being. And how do you explain that part? Because one of one of the arguments, or a more radical version of the argument that is sometimes posited, is the idea that the power of the state is somehow inherently patriarchal. And that because the state has its origins in ancient family dynasties, there's a sort of logic of male domination, no matter who is in charge. Well, it was interesting. Hillary Clinton um, commented at, at first she was in Italy when right before the election. And she first said, well, oh, maybe it will be a good thing. It'll be progress because Maloney is a woman. And then people corrected her that, no, this is a mm. former fascist. And then she said, well, women, you know, far right women, they get ahead because they are essentially holding up patriarchal policies because they're taking women's reproductive rights away. Um, they're they're taking they're putting restrictions on women even though they claim to be uh, in favor of women. It's a very different um, model of the family that puts the burden on maternity. In fact, the new um, minister of family that Maloney just appointed, she says she wants to restore uh, to maternity a centrality and a prestige it hasn't had. And she used phrases that I am very familiar with because Mussolini used to use the same phrases. Mm. And that, so the more you know about the illiberal past, <laughs> um, the more you see that this kind of trick that these uh, women are trying to, to do that, you know, standing up for women, but actually taking women's rights away. Mm. I wanted to ask you uh, something about the the criticism Francis Fukuyama made in his review of your book for the New York Times, and that's the the current wave of strongman uh, Orban in Hungary, Modi in India, Bolsonaro, Erdogan, and of course Trump. They all came to power through elections, and yet among their counterparts from the second wave, which you talk about in the book, Mobutu and Gaddafi and so on, none of those were elected. They were, as we were saying earlier, they were just military officers who seized power through force. Fukuyama's criticism was that you didn't elaborate sufficiently on the reasons behind that shift. And so I thought you, you could have the chance to respond, because what do you think accounts for that switch from the coups to the third wave of elections? Yes, um, the, the end of the Cold War, uh, the end of the Cold War, which because many of these, not Gaddafi, certainly, and not the anti-colonial, well, not Nasser and not Gaddafi, but Mobutu, was an anti-colonial leader who did very interesting things. Uh, his authenticity revived indigenous traditions, but he was a Cold War US-backed puppet. Mm. Um, and certainly Pinochet was a US puppet through and through, as were all of those um, Latin and South America dictators. And when uh, the Cold War, in fact, Pino, why did Pinochet had to, had to leave? He got voted out because in the early 80s, the Americans subtracted their support from him. They decided to, uh, he wasn't useful to them anymore. And the end of the, the Cold War and the fall of communism created a kind of void. And Berlusconi is extremely important 
in, in my book and in history because so communism falls, you know, end of the 80s. And he is already in office in 1994 with the, he brings neo-fascists into the government. And so the end of, the end of communism um, and the end of this polarization that made those U.S.-backed coups and French-backed coups, British-backed coups possible, created a void. And what filled that void? The new right. And then you also have the phenomenon of people like Putin and Orban who were communists, but then gravitate over the years to becoming far-right leaders. Um, I do want to say something that uh, just the other day, uh, Fukuyama published an article in The Atlantic where he essentially espouses all of the theses that he criticized me for, uh, <laughs> including he thought that Trump shouldn't be in the book. And, uh, and he said Trump is his own thing. He shouldn't. That's an error. And now he mentions Trump casually next to Orban and other illiberal leaders. And there's mm. several other points that he was very strongly critical of the book. And they're all he's reversed himself. And he's now um, he doesn't talk about me in there, but yeah. he has now um, changed his mind. And uh, this is this is the toll of having a book that is. Um, very early to say things. Some people are not ready to accept what you have to say until several years later. And to some degree, I mean, events moving in your favor. I mean, this is the part we haven't really talked about yet, which is that we talk about Trump as if he is the past. There's a possibility that he's the future. Yes, Trump, Trump is, um, you know, in a sense, Trump is no longer needed in terms of having sparked um, he, he really shocked the system. And this is what these guys do. They shock mm. the system. They, they, you know, rejigger everything. They create new movements. In fact, Trump used to call his, his whatever it is, a movement. And he took over the, he kind of took over the, you know, Republican Party and he sub, su subjected it to an authoritarian discipline. And now, especially since January 6th, which was another total shock to the system. So many taboos were broken. I mean, he, he wanted to have the vice president killed, <laughs> which is coup territory, which is very, I was like, oh, my third of my book is on coups. So to me, all the things that happened around January 6th and subsequently are, are classic coup things. So this was an enormous shock to the system. And so the, the, the GOP has radicalized itself and now it really behaves like an authoritarian party. And so in that sense, Trump is no longer needed, um, but his leader cult is extraordinarily robust um, for somebody who hasn't been in office for a while. And that's quite unusual. A lot mm. of time, um, so Berlusconi's uh, personality cult uh, kept on after he was forced to resign in 2011. And what made it start to shrivel was that Berlusconi was convicted. He right. was, he had many, many corruption trials, but finally in 2013, two years after he left, Berlusconi was convicted and he was banned from politics for five years. And that's what did it. Now, Trump is sitting on, he's got many investigations. He's the subject of but he hasn't been convicted of every of anything despite the coup attempt. And so his cult is still there. And the big lie was a genius um, propaganda 
uh, strategy. He's a, he's a truly, he's one of the most important propagandists in our century. He really is. Because what the big lie did, besides legitimating election denial and with huge consequences, it allowed his followers, the grassroots followers, to not have to reckon with the fact that he lost. He could mm. still be their hero. He could still be infallible, omnipotent. And he became, he, he, he's the victim. He had something taken from him. So in terms of keeping their emotional bond with him and his control over them, the big lie worked perfectly. And that's partly why his cult is still going strong. And he may come back and, and have Trump 2.0. Mm. I, I wanted to ask you two more things um, before we wrap up. And that was to sort of take a step back and think about where authoritarianism fits into a what you might think of as a larger scope of unfreedom. Um, something that the political theorist Leopi spoke about when we had her on the show was how unfreeing the fall of the communist regime in Albania was for most Albanians. The economic turmoil that followed meant that a lot of people ended up with fewer opportunities um, than they'd had under Hoxha, and young women in particular because they faced a more restricted lifestyle you know, in a country that was less safe. When we talk about freedom, we so often just talk about it as the absence of domination, but there is more to it than that, isn't there? Yeah, I agree. And if you look at Russia, um, I mean, I, I think that outside of Eastern Europe, people don't know enough about how catastrophic it was in Russia in the 1990s. That, you know, there was mass suicide of men, mass alcoholism, mass sickness. Um, we hear about the institutional maneuvers, how, you know, the KGB was plundering the gold and, and the oligarchs were getting, you know, started and, and, and all the things that, that started off the kleptocracy, but the total despair of, of the material circumstances of people and the disappointment after the fall of communism, but, but it made things, the, the material conditions were so difficult, which is what drives people to, there truly was mass suicide of, of, of men. Hmm. And um, this is why Putin was able to come in and say, I will fix it. <laughs> mm. um, and he was totally unknown, right? He was yeah. put there uh, by one of the oligarchs. Nobody knew who he was, was, but he was able, because also he, you know, probably uh, kind of helped to plan these apartment bombs and created a crisis and then the Chechen war. And he rose up very quickly into the public mind as a capable, fit, um, competent man who would fix the problems for other men who were absolutely desperate. So I think there's a lot more um, work to be done in to talk about how when you have this enormous liberation and then it turns out to be so disillusioning it creates the conditions for another cycle of unfreedom. Mm. And I wanted to ask you lastly, because of course you're a historian of Italy, I wanted to understand where you think Georgia Meloni, who we touched on briefly, but where do you think she fits into a wider historical view of what's happening? So if you had to place her somewhere, would you put her in the third wave contemporaries 
or have we now gone full circle and we're seeing the stirrings of a, a fascist takeover that's more like the first wave? She, she's a product of both Mussolini and Berlusconi, the first wave and the third wave, because she, she's, she's only in her 40s, but she uh, was a hardcore militant in the original neo-fascist party that was that was formed right after the war to keep fascism going. And it's important that, you know, people know the German case so much better where, of course, everything was banned. In Italy, the, it's the allies who, who didn't want to do that. They were afraid because Italy had such a big communist party of creating social unrest. So they allowed this neo-fascist party to, to be there. And it became the fourth largest party in Italy by the 60s. So fascism has been normalized in Italy for a very long time. And she came up in this tradition, as, as did many of the people now in her government. I just am preparing another piece on now that she's announced her government. Over half of the ministers, including uh, ministers who are supposed to be moderates, like the minister of finance, they all had uh, an extreme right background in this original neo-fascist party. Mm. So... And then so she comes up in this and then Berlusconi comes in and he brings the neo-fascists into power. For the first time in Europe, nothing would be possible in terms of the center-right governments if it weren't for Mussolini. He broke the, sorry, Berlusconi. He broke the taboo. He brought neo-fascists in very briefly in 1994 and then in the 2000s. And she became a minister in his last government. So he gave her her start. And it was during that last government of his, 2008 to 2011, where he also, uh, he, he had extremely draconian anti-immigrant policies. He was extremely pro-Putin. Uh, the Americans were very worried because he would it was be just pushing all of Putin's agendas. And um, he also was uh, kind of, his government was doing this kind of, uh, demographic pro-natalism. So she is, she is um, bringing forward all of those programs, but she's also taking advantage of this new um, dynamism of the original fascism that's mm. back. Are you optimistic about the future of Italy? Because I know it's a country that you know very well. Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm not so optimistic about it right now because I think that, you know, when, when this happened, when she was elected, some people like Yasha Monk, he wrote a piece for the Atlantic and he said, oh, well, we shouldn't worry about it because, you know, governments don't last very long. And many people had this line, oh, she probably won't be there very long. The way I see things, <laughs> um, any amount of time that somebody is there normalizing extremism, this is somebody who has said that no mosques should be built anymore in Italy um, because, and you have to speak Italian and Muslims don't speak, don't speak Italian. I mean, she's rabidly anti-immigrant and rabidly anti-Muslim. Um, and so I think somebody who's there, even if she only lasts a year, further normalizes hate politics. And so that's not a good thing. Ruth Ben-Ghiat, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. You can find Ruth Ben-Ghiat on Twitter, at Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Her latest book, Strong Men, From Mussolini to the Present, can be found in all good bookshops. 
You can also subscribe to her weekly newsletter about threats to democracy, Lucid, on Substack. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafline. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us. <laughs>